If you would, take your Bible this evening and join me in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter number 12. In just a few moments, we'll be there. And that passage, we won't be putting on the screen. So if you have a Bible, um, which I hope you do, join me in Hebrews chapter number 12. Uh, Just out of curiosity, this is not true for me. Um, I did not do this in junior high or high school and not in college. But um, how many of you were ever a part of a track team before? Or maybe right now, raise your hand, track folks. Okay, several of you out there. And any of you ever run relays? Part of the track team that ran a relay. Okay, so some folks that probably are still participating in track and many of you that would have run relays. In a relay, I've watched this happen. In fact, I've watched the disappointment when this didn't happen correctly. But in a relay race, we, we, most of us would understand that there are different legs of that race to run. And so a person starts out with a little baton and they run their leg of the race. And then there is a section on the track that is the area where that baton must be passed from one person to the next. And, and there are some races that have been sadly disappointing because in that race, maybe a person's doing, you know, splendidly well, but as they're running, you only have that limited window to take that baton and get it from one person running into the hands of the next. And if you drop it, then obviously you are, you are disqualified. And then if you are no longer in the window of that space, then you're also you know, you're disqualified. You can't pass that baton unless it is in that window of, of opportunity. The, the title of our message tonight is titled, While There Is Hope. While There Is Hope. The idea that scripture is about to communicate is is found in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18. And it says, chasten thy son. And then it uses that expression, while there is hope. And then it goes on and it says, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Well, this gives some indication minimally that there is something that was applied to that child that the child did not like. How many of you have ever found that the world does not treat you always as you would like? That there are some things that, uh, well, I want to do this, and I want to do that, and, and I don't like other people telling me what to do. Well, certainly a child grows up, And when they're children, they speak as children. They act as children. That's the, the life of a child. But the Bible also indicates that when I became a man, I put away childish things. How is it that a child learns to go from a life focused on this is what I want to do to something bigger than himself? How is it that a person can have this window of opportunity to actually have something passed from one generation to the next that says you're supposed to carry this forward and it's not going to end with you. You're going to be handed something and it's your responsibility to run then your leg of the race and you've got something now to pass on to the next generation. 
And they continue to run the race. We're about to see in Hebrews chapter 12 that that correction is, is mandatory in the life of a believer. It's not one of those optional things. It's not one of those things that is for the advanced life of the believer. This is just part and parcel of the Christian life. We're going to see that God scourgeth every son. Now, no one here likes to be corrected, self-included. No one here, and, and I really do believe this. I don't think I'm making an overstatement. No one here likes to be told, don't do that. Or you've done that, stop doing that. No one likes that kind of correction. And yet, isn't it interesting that oftentimes, well, we'll get into that in a minute, but, but oftentimes we associate correction with something other than love. The Bible helps us understand that God's motivation, as should be our own, is that God comes from a place where he gets to say something. And he does say something, not just because he can, but he has a loving, gracious agenda. Okay, so then if we kind of narrow this down a little bit, it has a lot of applications, but if we start to narrow it down and then we start to make some applications to children, we could ask the question, why don't we correct children? Why don't we do that? Because there are times clearly that, that maybe we should and we don't. Or maybe there are just times where we say, well, I, I, I don't really believe, you know, that today children should be corrected. Children really just need opportunity to express themselves. And if you don't allow them to do that, you're stifling something, you know, I mean, so imperative in their life for their development, for their advancement. And, and so why don't we? I think we're going to mention just a couple reasons briefly because of the the volume of content that we want to address but I think first of all because of shifting influence we're experiencing a shift from biblical influence to cultural influence think about how biblically centered this person is in Psalm 119 97 oh how I love thy law it is the it is my meditation all the day there is something God that is central in my thinking in my life I am meditating, I'm mulling over your law all the day. Well, what happens when, when our culture shifts from a, what we've historically called here in the United States, a Judeo-Christian set of values or a God-centric form of living? What happens when we do that? Well, then we're kind of left to our own devices. We just kind of have to figure things out on our own. Today, we often find our first resource is to... Now, now again, I'm not disparaging these. And I'm really not because there can be some that are wonderfully valuable and there can be some that are, that are wonderfully wrong. But today, we, we can look at, at some, some blogging mom and what's her view on, for example, corporal punishment. And she can write in quite articulate fashion. And in our thinking today, her view is just as valuable as the next. I mean, so why shouldn't she get to have an opinion that's valuable? Is, is your idea of right and wrong any more valuable than hers? Good question, right? 
Okay, so is yours any more valuable? Well, quite frankly, no, yours isn't any more valuable, nor is mine. But when we start to back up a little bit and say, okay, well, if that's the way culture works, like anybody, uh, how about this? How about a, um, like, a, a, I don't know, a really popular athlete? Like a really popular athlete because, man, he's so good on a football field or on a basketball court, certainly he should speak to, to what should happen with whatever. I mean, the topic could be anything. Or how about a person who is a celebrity? I mean, we see them on, on TV or movies and they're, they're really popular and they play this role. And so because they play this role on TV, shouldn't they be able to speak to matters that, that mirror their role? And so now we've given authority and a voice to such a variety of people. And if we've adopted that ourselves, like my opinion is just as valuable as anybody else's. If that's your manner of coming to conclusions, that's true. But if we start to understand that, that God ultimately as our ultimate authority is the one who also distributes authority. And then, okay, I want to I go to the ultimate. So he's given it, and now he has directed this to do, and he starts to, you know, like, like direct it out. But it comes from a central source, not from a variety of sources. You see the difference? Why is it that we don't correct children? Well, because of shifting influence. Why don't we correct children today? Well, because of a shifting view of love and grace. Because of a shifting view of love and grace, biblically and historically, we understood that disciplining a child was the loving and gracious thing to do. But instead of allowing scripture to define what is loving, we've turned to ourselves to provide that definition. So if someone, listen, have you ever, you know, had someone correct you and your immediate response is, that's not very loving, well, because we don't like it. I don't like it, and I, I suspect you don't like it. So what we do is, because I don't like something, I immediately define, that's not loving. And in our culture, our society today, we have deemed an inaccurate view or definition of love and grace to be something other than what God has deemed, what God has spoken as legitimate. Let's consider God's definition. In Hebrews chapter 12, I invited you to turn in your Bibles there. So Hebrews chapter 12, let's begin in verse number 5. We're going to read a lengthy portion, so, so stay with me and let's engage our mind with this passage to the topic at hand. Verse number 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Now pause right there, I know I'm asking you to connect, but remember, we've had this shift of influence. Like, okay, now everybody's, everybody's opinion is as valuable as anybody else's. But ye have forgotten the exhortation. And then he goes on and he says, because of our, I mean, we're talking about this shifting view of love and grace. Well, I define love as this. And I define grace as this. You have forgotten the exhortation. That's what he's, that's what he's helping us understand. Okay, let's return to what is the accurate view of. All right, so you've forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children. My son, my child, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth. Did you see that word? Do you have it circled or underlined or highlighted in your Bible? This word is one of those, wow, you can't get around that, and scourgeth every son, every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. 
For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Now he uses very direct language in verse number 8. But if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. He says then you're illegitimate. You're not a true son. If you don't receive correction from the hand of God, he says there's something illegitimate about what you're looking at as your relationship. Verse number 9, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Wow, there's something now that was connected to the correction. Revering, not despising, not belittling, not saying you have no right to. We gave our fathers reverence. We we go on a little bit further. We gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present. And here again is a 100% statement. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are, here's a good word, exercised thereby. My dad exercised me on multiple occasions. I got a lot of good family exercise. Well, he's helping us understand what is the definition of biblical love and grace. God defines that. He's reminding us, he's bringing us back to not a self-defined conclusion, but a God-defined conclusion of love and grace. Did you notice how discipline is inseparable from God's love? It's inseparable. You cannot have the love of God without the corrective hand of God. Those two literally go hand in hand. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Obviously, discipline discipline can be abused. And I want to stop and make this dogmatically clear. Discipline, any authority can be abused. But authority does and should exist. And it's our duty then to recognize the same. We're talking here, of course, about the, the context of family. It extends beyond that, but we're talking about the authority of the family. That discipline can be abused. It's a sad reality. Any good thing can be abused. You can abuse fire, but we don't ban all fire because, well, at times someone played fast and loose with fire and look at the destruction that came about. Well, I know, but does that mean that we don't, we don't use fire at all? We could extrapolate that idea and go much further than that. I mean, you can abuse money, authority, anything, marriage, All these things that God gave for good can be abused, but it doesn't mean that we forsake the whole thing just because of the potential for abuse. It does mean that we build in a right understanding of what and how is this to be used. So question, why do children need to be disciplined? Okay, we we understand why don't we correct children. We we have this shift in understanding, but why do children need to be disciplined? Now, now we should know the disciple-making process for children, really there are two elements to this. We're going to lean more heavily on one side than the other. But the two sides are, are both a proactive side, that's primarily instructive. And then, I know we don't sometimes like this word, but a reactive side, and, and that has more to do with correction. 
So a proactive side, instruction. Okay, we're going to instruct our children in the way that they should go. That's being proactive. But there's also a reactive side. In other words, a child does this. We have to then react to appropriately what it is that the child did. And that is primarily corrective. Both of these sides are are absolutely essential. You can't only have the instructive. Well, I just tell my child what to do. Well, that's fine. You should be doing that. That's the proactive part of making a disciple. So we want to give that continual instruction. When we're walking in the way, when we're rising up, when we're lying down, that means there's a continual, continual conversation of truth. Proactive. But there also has to be a reactive side. That's corrective. Okay, I told them to do this and they didn't do that. Now I'm going to react to their actions. They acted in disobedience. I have to react to what they just did. And again, that's a primarily reactive form, corrective form of how we're going to react to their actions. Okay, so so why do children need to be disciplined? Number one, because of the nature of the child. Because of the nature of the child. Remember now, all of us are, are in some way, shape, or form, we're all created in the image of God, but because of the fall, which is rightly termed, because of the fall of man, we now have a distorted image. We, we don't bear that image correctly. And now we're born with a bent that is continually to do wrong. Genesis 8, 21, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. We don't like to use those kinds of terminologies because it seems like, oh, the innocence of a child. Well, innocent in that they haven't experienced a lot, but not innocent as it pertains to the heart of the matter. Psalm 51, verse number five, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It doesn't mean that the conception was a sinful conception. Like, oh, that was an immoral conception. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is I was conceived in sin. I was born a sinner. Psalm 58, verse number three, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Well, th- this just means that I have something that, that I come by naturally, and that is a nature that is in need of correction. The very nature of a child is opposed to the God that created him. It's completely opposite to the modern thinking of the day. It, it, that, that, by the way, that thinking is not found in Scripture. Proverbs 22, verse number 1 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Bound in. So there's something that we come with that is, um, it's, it's factory issued, okay? We all have it, and so does every one of us. So do each of our children. Okay, so why do children need to be corrected? Because of the nature of the child. Number two, because of the direction of the child. Because of the direction of the child. Proverbs 29 verse 15. A child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Why does a child need to be corrected? A child left to himself. That means like you find your own way. You just discover yourself. Uh, We're not going to inhibit you. We're just going to facilitate whatever it is that you want to experience. Okay, now, if your end goal is the happiness of a child, can you ever correct a child? I mean, if you want your child to be happy, I just want my kids to be happy. Well, can you ever correct them? I mean, if if you want your child to just, I don't want them to ever experience an ounce of pain, 
well, wow, you're really limiting yourself. But if you have a goal in life of transferring in a limited amount of time something that is yours to give and you got to pass it to them, something bigger than the child, then we would understand there is the, the necessity of directing the child. Exodus 32, verse number 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. Oh, they had a directional problem. They turned out of the way. So here's the way, walk ye in it. But oh, they didn't. They turned out of the direction that God gave them. They have made them a molten calf, have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Permissiveness is never the strategy of Scripture. Permissiveness. Well, just do what you want to do. I permit it. That, that is the model of today, but it's not the model of Scripture. Well, what do you want to do? It's not the model found here. Why is it that children need to be disciplined? Number three, because of the responsibility placed on parents. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. I've said this before. I'll mention it briefly again. But remember, this is not a 100% guarantee that if you do everything exactly as you're supposed to do, you have a guarantee from God. The, the Proverbs are instructive Proverbs. These are helping me understand what's the principle for child rearing. You say, well, well, listen, shouldn't I be able to claim that promise? Okay, let me ask you this. Uh, stand up in here if you are the perfect parent and you parented your child perfectly. Please stand at this time. Okay, obviously I'm asking somewhat of a facetious question, but who here is dare going to stand and say, I parented my child perfectly, therefore I claimed the promise. I perfectly trained up my child in the way he should go, so I get to claim the promise. Or is it more like a meter? Generally speaking, for the most part, train up your child, and then you're still in the green light section, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Is that what it's saying? Like, oh, I got to be careful. I'm kind of teetering on the, on the yellow. I'm going to get into the red and then there's no hope for the child. Is that what it's saying? If you want to look at the verse as an absolute, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he can't get away from it. Hmm. All the days of his life, he's going to know the difference between right and wrong. All the days of his life, he's going to carry with him. I know what I should be doing. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, can't depart from it. The thing that we should take away from this is train up a child in the way he should go. Lord, to the best of our ability, we continue to depend on you. We do this haltingly. We, we don't do it perfectly. But Lord, oh God, our overarching desire is to train up this child. Train. Sometimes we train a plant. We, we bend it in the direction we desire it to go. Because of the responsibility placed on parents, Proverbs twenty two thirteen, withhold not correction from the child. Number four, because of the love which we have of parents toward our children, chasten thy son while there is hope and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Um, in in a, a piece wrote in the, written in the 1800s, The Duties of Parents by J.C. Ryle, he said, Fathers and mothers, I tell you plainly, if you never punish your children when they are in fault, you are doing them a grievous wrong. I warn you, this is the rock on which the saints of God in every age have only too frequently made shipwreck. And why should we discipline our children? Because of the consequences. And those are both positive and negative. We don't have time to look at this in detail, but a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to them that bear him. That's consequential. 
Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. The rod and correction, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Wise, that's able to choose that which is proper over that which is not. He's, he's saying very plainly, parents, it is your responsibility to correct your child. Say, well, I did that and, and my, my child went astray. Do you believe that God has created mankind as a free moral agent? And, and the answer all throughout scripture is yes. Can people, independently of their training, make decisions that go against what God has instructed and what you taught them? Yeah, they can. But did you know that is no reason for any parent to not consistently, lovingly, graciously correct their children? You say, well, what does that look like? Well, sometimes it is, it is um, a non-physical correction. Okay, you didn't do that, you can't do that. That's a form of correction. But it's not the whole of correction. And again, I know which day we're living in. I know it is, it is May of 2023. And if you want resources as to why not use what the, the Bible refers to as the rod, you can find ample information on why a parent should never spank a child. But if you look in the, the truths of Scripture, the clarity with which it provides is inescapable. It gives us instruction to correct a child, and there's a physical aspect to that correction. If you ask the question, how should I spank a child? I would say not to agitate the child. If you spank a child, don't agitate the child. In fact, one place I read, it said, I think you should spank a child one, with one or at the most two swats. If my dad would have done that to me, quite honestly, it would have been like him poking me in the chest. And I'm being serious. It would have been an agitation to me. So I, I don't think you should correct a child with physical correction just to agitate the child. I, I think that we do, in a sense, more disservice than service to the child. How should I spank a child with control of yourself? If you are ever out of control, you are not prepared to correct a child. And I can't overstate that. You say, well, you know, I just, I just applied the, the, the rod and reproof, amen. Don't be flippant with an instructive that is of great consequence. So how should you correct a child in a controlled fashion? If, if you are ever unprepared, because have you ever been angry and upset at a three-year-old before? Well, of course you have. Because three-year-olds now know they're quite wise on how to push buttons, and they know right where the buttons are, okay? So have you ever been angry? Okay, well, is that the time to, to correct the child? It's, it's not. Now, I know you say, well, they need to know right then. I know, but you better take a breath and, and correct yourself before you apply any correction. In fact, if you're prepared on this is what correction looks like before you apply it and you hold yourself to it, you've done yourself a service. How should I correct a child? With a correction that shows the disobedience was not worth the consequence. With correction that shows the disobedience was not worth the consequence. Okay, so wow, I did this. Have you ever, when you were a child, have you ever weighed the consequence? Like, okay, I know it's going to cost me this, but it's only going to cost me this, so I'm willing to do it because 
I, I want this more than I fear the consequence. Do you know when it comes to a, a, a parent's correction of a child, you shouldn't, you shouldn't correct the child in such a way that it, it, doing the wrong was actually worth it. The, the disobedience, the correction should show that the disobedience was not worth the consequence. How should you spank a child, correct a child physically? You should do so privately. You should do so privately. This is not about public embarrassment or humiliation. How should I correct a child? You should do so consistently, consistently, so that a child consistently knows if I do this, the response is this. How should I correct a child? With expressions of love both before and after the correction. It's why we grew up hearing things like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Did you ever, how many of you heard that expression? I heard it a lot. How many of you didn't believe it when it was happening? Okay. I don't know that I did either, but how many of you understood it when you were on the other side of correction? Do you know, if, if you're going to correct a child, there should be love on, on the, the front side and love, for lack of a better expression, on the back side of correction. <laughs> with expressions of love both before and after the correction. To discipline a child and then continue to shame them after the correction means that your correction didn't resolve their disobedience. Do you know, I can remember when I was corrected as a child, I can remember that there was something wonderfully refreshing after. That there was something about the tears that actually cleansed that now there was something that was restored between me and my parent. Like, okay, I know I did wrong, but, but afterwards, dad and mom, they loved me before they corrected me. They loved me after they corrected me. And there was no more consequence. It wasn't this ongoing, well, we'll just see. You remember what you, that was completely gone. Because now there is wonderful restoration. God promises specific benefits in a home where children are discipled. That is discipline corrected. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. May God give us a recentering, not forgetting the exhortation, but a recentering of our thinking on his definitions of love and grace.